that page. And this little book, uh, Malachi, which we're going to be looking at uh, together, um, is God's last word in the Old Testament. It is the last thing that God says to his people before Jesus. Now, we're going to begin a series, as, as I said, tonight in this book. And what I want to do in this first sermon is, is give us a taste of what's to come. Um, as we approach it, we're going to uh, ask three questions. Okay, three questions. And the first is, who? Who? Now, in this question, we're thinking about the author and the audience, and we meet Malachi in verse 1. And the first thing to say about him is that we're told very little about him. Verse 1 is not like a Christian conference bulletin or the author profile on the latest Christian book. There is no shiny photo of Malachi's family. And we're not told of his ministry website. Uh, We don't learn about his uh, years of experience, his hobbies, or anything like that. All we get is his name, Malachi. And it means messenger. And here's a reminder to us at the beginning that what matters most uh, is always not the servant of the Lord, but the word of the Lord. And the word that he uh, carries is described as an oracle. You see that in the text? An oracle. This can mean burden. And Malachi's message is a weighty message. Maybe you sensed that as Andy uh, read to us. God is going to have some very wonderful things to say to his people through this book, but he's going to have some very difficult things to say as well. And the audience is also introduced in the opening verse, Israel. Uh, The name Israel means uh, God prevails or, or wrestled with God. And at this point in their history, God's people were very close to giving up on him. They had become cynical. Uh, They were also disappointed. Malachi is uh, one of the prophets who ministered after the return from exile. And this was a huge moment for God's people. After their sin, after years of captivity, God had raised up King Cyrus to deliver them from the Babylonians. And they were finally free to, to worship in their own land. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they describe this return. They describe all the attempts to to rebuild the temple, the stop-start process. There was a great sense of expectation. But over time, their, their enthusiasm had waned. And even after the temple was complete again, God didn't seem to be doing the things he he spoke of through prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. So God's people were cynical. God's people were disappointed. And God's people, as a result, became disobedient. There was idolatry. There was heartless worship. There was intermarriage and many more things. And they had left undone the things they ought to have done. And they had done those things they ought not to have done. 
And so maybe as I try and uh, paint something of a picture, you can see parallels with us. Like them, we are people who have experienced a great deliverance, haven't we? And yet like them, we've been, and like them, we've been promised a great future. And yet while we wait for that future, you and I can struggle with very similar issues. Maybe tonight you're weary of the Christian life. Yeah, maybe worship has become something of a chore. Maybe sin is, is draining your love for God. Well, if that is so, and if it's not yet, it may be soon, then Malachi has a message that we all need to hear. That's question one, who? Question two is how, how? One of the things that uh, children love to do is ask questions, isn't it? And why does uh, the water in the ocean look blue when it is clear in my bath? Why do I have to eat peas? Why aren't bananas called yellows? Questions like that. And Malachi is a book full of questions. I counted on Friday. There are 25 in 55 verses. 25 questions in 55 verses. That is one almost every two verses, isn't it? And many of them are questions that God asks, but many of them are directed at God. At points in Malachi, it's as if God's people think that they are on mastermind. Uh, but they don't think that they're in the hot seat. They think they're Clive Myrie. Uh, they think they have the right to ask the big questions of God. As uh, C.S. Lewis put it, God is in the dock. And we see this in verse 2. God begins with a statement, I have loved you. And look at how the people respond with a question. But you say, how have you loved us? Then God gives a response with a question of his own, a fuller answer. And this, this pattern of truth, question, and then response, that is repeated six times all the way through to chapter 4, verse 3. There are kind of six disputations or, or arguments between God and his people. And if you glance down at verse 6, you can see the same thing again. Um, a statement in verse 6 with then two questions from God. And then at the end of verse 6, but you say, and a question from God's people, and then the beginning of God's response. So Malachi is full of questions. And I think this is uh, fascinating. When I trained as a teacher... We were told that there were two things that we had to um, really focus on. One was time in the classroom. We always had to know what time it was. But another really important thing in, in teaching is questions. And that is because you can try and teach a subject just by giving pupils a kind of information dump. Um, you can get all the facts from your PowerPoint into their jotters, and there's a place for that. 
But some of the most engaging lessons are those where questions are discussed or questions are asked of the class. Why did the Americans choose not to have a king? How far had Martin Luther King's dream come true by the time he died? See, questions make us stop. Questions make us think. Questions are memorable. And by using this method, by by putting the grievances of the people of God in question form, Malachi is making us consider a question, isn't he? Do we ever treat God like this? It's unsettling. So Malachi has a method, we might say a strategy, and Malachi also has a structure. Turn with me to chapter 4, which Andy read from, chapter 4, and these verses at the close of the book, chapter 4, verse 4 to uh, verse 6, I won't read them again, just look down at them. These are kind of a a little summary of what uh, comes before. Do you see that as Malachi finishes, he mentions the law of Moses in verse 4, and then he speaks of Elijah in verse uh, 5 there. And Moses and Elijah, they were really the two great figures in the Old Testament. We see them with Jesus, don't we, on the Mount of uh, the Transfiguration. And they often stand as representatives of the law of God and, and of the prophets. And someone has said that in the first three sections of the book, we're looking at the first tonight, but in the first three, Moses stands behind Malachi's words. From chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 16, there, there are all kinds of connections made to the first five books of the Bible which Moses wrote. And then in sections 4 to 6, from chapter 2, verse 17 to the end... All the focus is on Elijah. It's as if he's standing behind what Malachi is saying. God's people are reminded of the day of the Lord that's mentioned. So Malachi is written to a cynical, disappointed, disobedient people. Malachi has a a technique. Malachi has a, a clear structure. But what is the heart of his message? What is the heart of his message? And what does it mean for us? That's the third question. We're going to take a little bit longer thinking about what. We've thought about um, who and how. Third question is what? Now, I mentioned uh, a, a moment ago about the day of the Lord. But Malachi is not a book that tells us when exactly this will happen. It is not like a calendar. No, Malachi is, much, is more like an alarm clock. And this book is here to give God's people a wake-up call. We have an alarm clock in our house. He is four years old. Every morning his voice cries down the corridor, can I come through? 
And Malachi is like that. And throughout this book, he will try to wake up God's people. He will expose dead religion. He will expose heartless worship. People who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Malachi will critique formalism in worship. Malachi will challenge idolatry, adultery. He will confront God's people over their failure to give generously. We will see Malachi condemn the leaders of God's people. And so Malachi is a wake-up call. And Malachi is also like highly intrusive medical surgery. Surgery that is painful but necessary. And the medicine in Malachi is strong, but the patient is in critical condition. And in Malachi, we will meet a God who fights for his people. On many occasions, he will refer to himself as the Lord of hosts. It's mentioned there in verse 4 of chapter 1, the one who is strong, the one who will stop at nothing to refine his people. A God who wants his people back. In Malachi, we're going to meet a God who keeps covenant even as his people are breaking it. A God who calls them back to true worship. We will see a God who perseveres with a people who are petulant. And we see the beginning of all this in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 1. Look at verse 2. I think this is amazing. The first thing that God tells this wayward people is what? I have loved you. I have loved you. Before he goes on to confront their sin or or challenge their behavior, they're reminded of this. I have loved you, says the Lord. And this is what makes their response in verse 2 all the more shocking. But you say, how have you loved us? See, the tone is petulant, isn't it? It is sarcastic. How have you loved us? God answers their question with one of his own. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated. At first glance, that might seem like quite a strange response. But if we know our Old Testament history, it makes perfect sense. Esau and Jacob, if you remember, they were uh, the two sons of Isaac. Isaac was the son that God had promised um, Abram and Sarah when uh, they were old and gray. And Esau was the eldest son Jacob was the younger son, and yet God reversed. He did the opposite of 
what his people might have expected. He reversed the natural order of things. He defied convention and he chose to work through Jacob's line. And by doing that, by mentioning that here, God is reminding Malachi's listeners, he is reminding us that God's love does, God does not love us because we are lovable. God loves us because of his own free choice. Sometimes we can think that uh, the doctrine of election um, is a New Testament idea or uh, something made up by a 16th century theologian. But it is all through the scriptures. It was the message that God shared through Moses. In Deuteronomy 7, he tells the Israelites, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. And so, friends, even if you struggle with this idea or, or struggle to believe it, I hope you can see or begin to see that it is liberating. God did not love you, if you're a Christian tonight, because he saw some potential in you that you have got to live up to. God did not love you because he knew you were the type of person who would persevere. God did not love you because of some need in himself. No, he made a decision. A decision to lavish his love on people who would never have chosen him. And this is love. Love to the loveless. Covenant love, God having mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. That is a foundation that you can rely on, even if your life is in bits tonight. Underneath you, surrounding you, hemming you in is the God of the Bible, a God who will never stop loving you. Now Paul picks up uh, verses 2 and 3 in Romans 9 to, to highlight God's mercy. But maybe tonight as uh, we looked at uh, those verses, what God says about Esau stuck out to you. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now let me say a few things about this. We can speak about it at the end if you wish. And the first is that there are numerous places in the Bible where God says he hates. But we need to remember that God's hatred is never sinful. Our hatred can be, can't it? But God's can't. The second thing we need to realize is that the language here of love and hate is mainly here to show that a distinction is being made. Love and hate are opposites, aren't they? Uh, Joyce Baldwin, a very helpful um, Old Testament commentator, puts it this way, the very fact that Jacob was chosen, loved, 
meant that Esau was rejected, hated. Rejection being implicit in the exercise of choice, she says. Personal animosity is not implied. But Esau and his descendants, by nursing resentment and showing hostility to Jacob, did bring God's judgment on themselves. See, it was not that Jacob was better than Esau. Jacob was a deceiver. Esau despised his birthright, but God chose Jacob. And the whole purpose here is to remind God's people, I love you. I love you. See, Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, they became a thorn in Israel's flesh. In Psalm 137, we we read that on the day Jerusalem fell, they cried out, tear it down to its foundations. And that is why the judgment of verse 3 is so necessary. And we see the kind of people they were in verse Four, full of themselves. They believe that even if God judges them, they'll be okay. They'll they'll rebuild. And so they come to personify a kind of anti-God state of mind, an attitude that says God may say one thing, but we can do the opposite. God cannot let that carry on forever. And then in verse 5, God expands the horizon. Look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. One of the things that um, the exile did was it gave the impression to some people that uh, the God that the Israelites worshipped was a kind of local deity, that he was powerless. But nothing could be further from the truth. And God's covenant people had been chosen to bless the nations. But that was something that they forgot. But God hasn't. And he is promising something stunning. He is promising to give his people new words to say to him. They're not weary words. He's promising to wake up his people and give them words that tell of all his greatness and his grace. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Um, A friend once uh, shared a phrase by Soren Kierkegaard with me, life is lived forward but understood backwards. Life is lived forward, but understood backwards. Often it's only long after challenges that we begin to see how they fit into God's plans. And the same is true with Scripture. And we read it forwards from Genesis to Revelation, but we understand it backwards. We can only grasp it in light of the future. And so tonight, you and I know so much more than Malachi's listeners, don't we? I mentioned uh, the transfiguration earlier. 
But that event takes place as Jesus prepares to go to the cross. And in Malachi, God's people ask, how have you loved us? But what is our response to that? Well, maybe 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so tonight, let Malachi lead you, begin to take you by the hand and lead you to the cross. Uh, As we read this painful, this difficult, challenging book, we would come back again and again to the place where wrath and mercy meet. And let Malachi remind you of a Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. Let Malachi remind you tonight of Jesus, the one who has promised to never let you go. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses knowledge. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.